Hello and welcome to episode 18 of Late Night Linux Extra, recorded mostly on the 11th of March 2021. I'm Joe. This is another recording from one of the community meetups. There's a couple of topics that we discussed here. Thank you everyone who's been coming to them. It's been great so far. If you want to take part in the next one, go to latenightlinux.com slash mumble and there's details there of what you need to do to get connected to mumble and everything and what the date's going to be. I'm not sure what that is yet, but by the time you listen to this, hopefully that page will be updated. And also listen out in the main show because I'll make sure to announce it there. Thank you everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate it. If you want to learn more about that, go to latenightlinux.com slash support. And if you want to get in contact, latenightlinux.com slash contact. So let's get straight on with it then. Open source versus open standards. What is more important? Is it more important that all the software is open source? Or is it more important that software uses open standards and it doesn't really matter what software you're using, whether it's open source or not, you can have file formats that will talk to each other and work on different software you can have devices that will talk to each other. It seems like maybe open standards are more important than open source. I would strongly agree with that. Open standards are what enable open source with closed proprietary s- standards. We can't compete, basically. It's a sort of like I find open standards are much more broad. They're broader in scope and just kind of almost a backbone of the internet. I'm thinking of HTTP. For example, like imagine that was something proprietary. Where would the internet be? You wouldn't have one without the other, would you? That's the problem. Like, for instance, if there was no open source, you wouldn't have open standards, would you? You could too. I mean, for example, uh, you know, I always think about the Microsoft Office formats. They could be totally open formats and open standards that could work with LibreOffice or whatever, and the actual software could be proprietary. Yeah, I mean, if you have an open standard, there's probably some guy is going to want to hack it and he will write open source for it. But it will be really, really hard if you need to reverse all the proprietary stuff, like LibreOffice. Their job is hard because they are going to, they are playing cat and mouse with Microsoft Office. Good example as well is uh, Google initially used XMPP and you can use any open source client with their XMPP chat service. Uh, that's now been replaced with whatever proprietary garbage I've got. And I imagine clients like Pigeon are really struggling to, to keep connecting to those types of services. I would say it depends on what your goals are. If you're kind of a Stallman-esque person who has this overarching uh, need to for freedom in every aspect of your life, then yeah, open source is the more important thing. But Realistically speaking, open standards is far more important because one, it enables interoperability, like people were saying, but also there have been cases like I had to do data recovery on a file that there's no program that exists for a modern computer that can read it anymore. And a guy I know lost a court battle because of that. Oh, wow. Imagine a universe where there's no open source and everything is proprietary, but they have open standards. Now, why would they have open standards? Because every other company out there is their competitors. The only reason that people make open standards is because they're giving and taking from open source. I'm not sure about that. I mean, I could see a world where HTTP is an open standard, but the only things connecting to it are proprietary browsers. Yeah, I, I agree that 
that could be the case, but that's not the way things have evolved, is it? I don't know. Mozilla's one bad decision away from. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but it took open source to force those open standards in the first place so that we're not all just stuck using AOL. Yeah, maybe I'm giving corporations too much credit that they they come up with a standard like HTTP by themselves. Probably not. I mean, small to medium companies, right? Okay, not mega courts. They don't do anything that they don't have to in terms of effort. These big companies, they must have a reason for interoperability and publishing their APIs for other people. You know, they want to make money. If it doesn't make them money, they won't do it. If we really want to go to the bottom of the barrel, we can look at the physical world because there have been open standards for uh, non-software things before software became as widely used and as much of a thing as it is is now and there we had open standards uh, for a while so in a way open standards uh, must have been there before open source but they are somewhat interdependent and i think open standards uh, really matter but they are only successful if they're uh, adopted and if they're reasonably well designed because otherwise nobody's going to pick them up they don't fulfill market demands, people won't use them. I mean, in the place of hardware, there are a lot of open standards or at least patented, but share with a lot of people. Like Zigbee, for example, it's an open standard because all the companies only want to make hardware and don't want to care about what the controller are you using and stuff like that. It's just like, I want to do a smart plug or stuff like that. Yeah, or even stuff like uh, M.2 slot, you know, that is a standard size and all motherboard manufacturers make it that size and all SSD manufacturers make it that size. And it just, everyone wins as a result of that. And I hate to play economist here. and It's my degree, but I've never used it. But there's always in business uh, cooperation versus, uh, now I can't even remember the word. I've been out of an English speaking country so long, but adversarial behavior. And there is a sweet spot that makes everybody the most money, and that's what will happen, and that's what we're seeing with these standards. Yeah, I, th- I think I, I will concede that you can most probably have uh, open standards without open source. But there is a symbiotic relationship, I believe. You know, when a group of organizations get together and say, hey, why don't we come up with an open standard so that we can all use one another's software and you know, work together? We're sure that sort of thing happens quite a lot. Yeah, I mean, it's what I said. If you have an open standard, there's someone with too much time is going to hack it. My partner, she's got Fitbit. None of us particularly like Google. Obviously, Google's now bought Fitbit. And um, I've been running Lineage on a Sony Z1 Compaq, uh, running an older version of a side-loaded Fitbit on there. And it just suddenly stops logging in, can't log in anymore. And I had to go back 20 um, versions effectively to get something that works. But I don't know how long it's going to work. Right. And there's a prime example then of where they've not used open standards and you're going to end up with bricked hardware, essentially. You're going to end up with paperweights instead of a useful smartwatch. Yeah, it's pretty much what happened with Pebble. Like, single the community got around and founded Rebel, but it's like, okay, we're going to break your devices. 
the other thing is is sort of about depro- deprecation of the OSs as well. It's like who makes that decision decision of saying we're not going to support Android seven anymore. It's going to be Android eight, and then there's millions of phones that then can't connect to those devices. And nearly every gadget these days needs an app. Don't support it on PCs anymore. Yeah, and they don't even use web standards or whatever. You need that app. Yeah. It's such a pain because Google's motivation is obviously for buying Fitbit is let's get everyone to buy new phones when the intent of Fitbit originally was probably let's get Fitbit running for everyone. Is it though? Or was it just to gather the data? Is that why they bought Fitbit? I probably just guess just to gather the data. But I think one of the big problems with not having open standard for stuff like that, like Fitbit or whatever application you want, it's really the vendor locking. I mean, you're stuck. You either say goodbye to all your years of data or keep using Fitbit. Pretty much with a lot of Google services like that. I mean, like, have fun if you want to get your notes out, out of Kip or stuff like that. You can still have this problem if you had open source software which wasn't using open standards. Like if you had say a password manager which was using some kind of database format that no one really understood, for example, and that might be quite tricky. But if you had something based on like plain text files, then that's kind of a different thing. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash late night Linux to get started with $100 free credit and 60 days to use it. Linode offers cloud computing solutions in data centers all over the world. Whether it's scalable VMs with a choice of major distros or one-click apps and stacks, dedicated CPU and high RAM instances, block and object storage, or cloud firewalls and DDoS protection, Linode has everything you need for your personal projects right up to managed enterprise infrastructure. I recently moved our website over to Linode and it was really straightforward. And when I needed a mumble server for our community meetups, spinning up a new VM for that was an absolute breeze. Everything's been running flawlessly since I set it up, and I love the peace of mind I get from the automatic backups. So go to linode.com slash late night Linux, get your $100 credit, and check out Linode's great cloud hosting services and first class always available support. That's linode.com slash late night Linux. What's your advice for people looking to take their first steps beyond the desktop into servers, headless boxes, not desktop Linux, but the rest of Linux. I know it's actually pronounced LexD, but LXD is a great tool. It got me started playing with containers because there's a little bit of a learning curve for Podman and Docker. And it's a great way to just have a quick thing you can set up. You know, if you, you can play around with it, you can set up, you know, a second desktop uh, that'll run in a container. But it's great for, I'm using it now to serve uh, Samba to my laptop, my wife's laptop, our tablet. Uh, and run a transmission uh, server on there. It's a great little thing. And it's just, you know, it gets you into a way that you can be doing this stuff in a completely harmless, no risk. If something goes wrong, delete it, start over. Is that not a little bit too advanced, though? I'm thinking someone who has only ever used desktop Linux before, you know, maybe they started with Mint or Ubuntu and, you know, I've tried various other distros, but now they're looking to get into the headless side of things. Isn't the best baby step to just start doing as much as they can through the command line to start with, copying files around, updates, software installation? Isn't that the the first baby step before you get into 
getting into containers and running actual services. That's pretty good. I think the problem of current Linux that's sometimes so polished that you don't have to do that anymore on the terminal. Yeah, I mean, if you install Ubuntu you or Fedora or whatever, you can do everything with the GUI these days. Yeah, just use GNOME software or whatever it's called mm. and go for it, right? I see one of the problems with that, that's using the command line. If, if you're not solving a problem, you have no reason to do it, actually. One of the first things that I would say is just get a spare box, because if you are scared of the command line or if you are scared of breaking stuff, you're not going to get the run to do anything. And second, just start thinking what you want to do with your your stuff. I mean, like, yeah, play around, modify stuff. I mean, I, I know a lot of not advanced users that they just have a GUI on their servers, maybe XFCE or something like that, because it's easier sometimes. I'm trying to remember what caused me to use the command line so much. I think it was probably just Linux was so broken in the GUI side <laughs> that you just needed the command line for basic functionality. One thing I would recommend for any new starter is to check out a command called TLDR, which I still use a lot. When you want good examples of how to use a particular command line tool, uh, rather than using the man pages, which can be really helpful, but also kind of very long and complicated, uh, TLDR will give you really good exam specific examples for how to use it. So as you suggest, Joe, like just moving files around, copying stuff around, getting right around top, things like that. Um, it's really helpful. But uh, I think a, a project or a reason to use a command line is definitely a good start. The other resource I will always recommend is explain shell, actually. Like before you write a command from a tutorial on the web, just run it on explain shell. So you under really understand what are you doing. It's not wrong to see what you do. You're like really consciously doing your stuff. People always say Raspberry Pi first, and that is good because they're cheap, right? But you don't necessarily have to buy a new device. If you've got an old laptop or any machine that will run Linux, that's good enough. If it will run Linux and connect to the network, if you're doing something that is headless, then you know if you're just looking to learn, you don't need performance, do you? Just even like a really, really old laptop that's got just even a spinning drive in it, you could set that up as a Samba server, say, and even if you're only getting you know a few megabytes a second read and write to it, it doesn't matter if all you're doing is learning. That's a good one. I think I've I've got an old ThinkPad from uh, 2007. It's already 64 bits, and it would be perfectly fine for that. But on the other hand, it's still perfectly fine for normal stuff. I think a laptop is a great idea, actually, for headless stuff, because if you break it, you have a monitor and a mouse connected to it. So you can just mm. open it up and say, oops, just reset it again. That's uh, what we do at home, and it's great because... Uh... There have been times where SSHing in just doesn't work and you know, if it were a Raspberry Pi, I'd have to pull out a monitor instead. I've got this laptop from 2009-ish that's uh, just completely useless otherwise and it's serving a great function in our home. One other thing to suggest is the AWS free usage tier. You could spin up an EC2 instance fairly quickly. Well, I was going to say that um, using some sort of VPS. I mean, obviously we're sponsored by Linode and you can get your $100 credit or whatever. But um, something like that, or as you say, AWS free tier, but something that is remote on the internet. The only hesitancy I'd say for that for someone who's totally new to it is be careful what you do with it. Like 
if it's all on your LAN, it doesn't matter if you don't follow best security practices and stuff. Whereas if it's out on the internet, if you just accept that you're not going to put private data on it and stuff, and if it does get pwned, then you're not in you know serious trouble. You can just destroy the VM and start again. If you do put something on the internet, you are going to get hammered. Like everyone is going to try to pawn you, like all the bots going around. Mm. So it's really a problem. Mm. So it sort of pays to know a little bit more before you take that step, maybe. So it seems that people need a motivation to start using the command line and, and to set up a headless box or VM or container or VPS or whatever. So what motivations are there to do it i mean for me the obvious the easiest one is the samba server but there's got to be other more interesting things that you can do that are relatively straightforward you can do a cardi box or a jellyfin server or an xcloud server nextcloud is really cool i don't know why nextcloud gets all the love i love nextcloud and i use it myself but c file is amazing and for some reason it doesn't get that much love it's much more much faster much more polished and i love the history it keeps of everything. Um, and that's been one of the best things to have around, especially after you accidentally delete your home folder. Nextcloud keeps a history though too. That saved my ass when I wrote my thesis. Maybe a good simple project for somebody to get started is just uh, a box, nothing special, just duplicity, have duplicity SSH into it and have a backup like that. It takes almost no skill, no no software setting up on the server, and it's very, very useful. Uh, a small wiki will will also be a good idea for something like like a personal wiki for stuff like you want to remember, mm. or maybe it's just certain old recipes from your grandma and with groceries or a lot of recipe servers. Yeah, or even like Popey does, he catalogs all his ThinkPads on there. I mean, you know, you could do that with the various hardware you've got or software installations or whatever, just to, to have somewhere to make notes and be searchable and whatnot. And that, in turn, will then make you learn about how to do backups of that. Like, how are you going to back up that database and maybe set up another file server to back that up too? 